You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Wednesday, September 17th, 2014, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Rebecca Watson. Hello, everyone. Jane Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Hello, my friends. How are you all tonight? Hello. Good night. Super. So, Bob, I understand that you drove two hours to see, to get a better view of the Aurora last week. How'd that go? Oh, yeah. How was it? Awesome. I drove two hours north and I saw shit. As usual, (laughs) nothing happened. It could have been an epic twice in a lifetime type of thing. And nothing. But Maybe I you should have, have expected it. Four hours. I should have. I should have or even 12. bet people. It does, it looked real good. We had two X class uh, flares a few days earlier. They were predicting auroras uh, northern. You know, the, the top northern half of the United States. Like, oh, this is great. And they had maps like go here, and you should get a good view. Nothing. Ah, uh, it was so frustrating. But um, it was. I would. Just, do, I would try it again because it's it's worth the effort. Because if it if I did see it, it would have been epic. I don't know, Why Bob. Don't the just... universe, ha- the universe seems to have it out for you when it comes to these sorts of uh, I'm kind of events. I'm kind of pissed at the universe. Very pissed. <laughs> Why don't you just take a trip to the Arctic yeah. Circle? There you go. <laughs> if hey. I, could, you know, if I could have, I, I would have done that in a heartbeat. Can you imagine how awesome it looked? Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, you can do that any time, though. <laughs> yeah, I know a lot of people that have seen it. And <laughs> it's full effect, Bob, and they always. Like, say, it's just mind-blowing. Oh, yeah. Yep. And it's funny because I, th- I keep thinking now of the day of the Triffids. You have this amazing astronomical event, this unexplained beautiful colors in the sky, and but everybody who sees it goes blind. So that's mm. that's wow. me. When I, when I finally do see something like that, it's going to cause some weird effect that makes me blind or whatever. But I'll take Probably. that chance. You know, next time you could just uh, drop some acid. That's like – it's like nature's aurora. <laughs> that's my plan B next time. Yeah, except it's just happening in your head. So is the so uh, so is everything else. Yeah. <laughs> well, if you want to get technical, come on, let's let's get philosophical. Yeah. I mean, hey, you, speaking a, of <laughs> none of that, uh, <laughs> September twentieth, back in nineteen fifty-two, this was the date when the Hershey Chase study was originally published. And Yum. this was groundbreaking. Uh, you might have learned about this in school and you might, uh, remember it as the blender experiment. But, uh, what this did was solve the debate over whether it was DNA or proteins that carried inheritable data. And so these two researchers, Alfred Hershey, uh, his assistant, uh, Martha Chase, along with a few other uh, researchers, went to work on this. It was pretty cool uh, how they did it. They basically, they experimented on bacteriophages, which we've talked about before on the show. And they made the proteins that they were passing on uh, radioactive in some of them. And in others, they made the DNA radioactive. And then they bred them, basically, and looked at the results. And using, like, literally a blender, they used a, an off-the-shelf blender to chop everything up and to separate the their specimens. Anyway, in the end, they realized that it was the DNA that was being passed along, not the protein. And that was a huge fight that was happening in the scientific community. So this was big news. 
and Hershey went along to win the Nobel Prize in Physiology, along with uh, another duo who also had an experiment that was quite famous named after them, Delbruck and Luria. So the Delbruck-Luria experiment won a Nobel Prize for Delbruck and Luria, and the Hershey-Chase experiment won a Nobel Prize for, uh, well, Hershey. Sorry, Martha Chase. <laughs> yeah, right? Martha, you're out. Yep, I- Martha went unloved and, huh. um, yeah, ended up having not such a great career after that, unfortunately, but it was quite sad. But anyway, it was a, it was an important experiment. Yeah, yet another in the long line of, uh, Nobel Prizes that make one wonder whether or not there was serious discrimination against women in the sciences. <laughs> you don't have to wonder that much. Um, no, <laughs> not really. It's pretty blatant. Growing body of evidence. That was definitely the tipping point of the protein DNA debate. Absolutely. After, after that, pretty much it was generally accepted that DNA was the substrate of inheritance. I, if I recall, Linus Pauling was a big advocate of it being proteins, not DNA. And Alfred Hershey was as well, actually. He went yeah. into the experiment expecting it to confirm the fact that it was proteins. And when they got the results back and he realized he was completely wrong, like, what a great science story right yeah. there. You yeah, know, yeah. changed his mind, published yeah. the paper, history. That was it. The yep. data is king. Yeah, absolutely. Part of the reason they thought that it had to be proteins was because, well, DNA was just too simple a molecule. But whereas deep, where proteins can be very, very complicated. So they thought, well, complex inf- information had to be conveyed in a complex structure like a protein, which is interesting when you think about it because huh. today we have absolutely no problem thinking about the digital information in DNA. You know, there's four base yeah. pairs. So sure, whatever. You could do it with two, you know, just by some kind of binary code. But because we're, we're, you know, a computer generation, so we have no problem thinking about it that way. But that was kind of a radical idea back then, you know, that so much information could be stored with just a few bits, you know. That's why if you go back even farther, they thought that, like each sperm had a little homunculus curled up inside of it. You know what I mean? That there was a template uh-huh. that they didn't even think about the transmission of information from one generation to the next. There was a transmission of a template from one generation to the next. Cause wow. I'd never heard that. That is crazy. That was, oh yeah. yeah. That was the, what they had, the intellectual tool they had accessible to them. They didn't have in computers. They didn't have information. They had templates. And so they thought there was a little homunculus curled up in every sperm and that that – That is, yeah, that is a like little creepy. Yeah. A little the, man. The, the, the problem little man. with that is, though is that the little homunculus would need another little one inside of him yeah, right, for the regression. next person and yeah. so on. Which of course is, is is silly, but that's kind of a byproduct of of just the culture and their and the time in history, Steve. Because I mean, a lot of yeah, that's what I'm saying. a lot of their culture that makes sense just stems from from how they did things in terms of even just making products and doing things. Yeah, they applied what they knew, and we take it for how granted now they? because yeah, we live in the post computer gener- you know era. So we, to us, it's it's an immediately accessible to think about things in in terms of digital information. Okay, Jay, you're going to give us a quick update on. NASA getting people to space. Absolutely. Yeah. This is so awesome. Like, I love the fact that there's a lot of news items that are, have to do with new 
spaceships and space travel, right? You know, there was a, there was a huge lull and, uh, we're seeing a lot of really cool activity. So the latest is that NASA has selected its partners that are going to, on a regular basis, take astronauts to and from space. This was considered to be a, a competition and two companies have been awarded the, you know, the winner slots for this competition. And that is Boeing and SpaceX that are, have been, uh, that broken out of the pack and are now in the forefront for receiving some serious investment dollars. So NASA said that they are going to be investing upward of $6.2 billion in the two companies, um, collectively. These two, so just to clarify, Boeing and SpaceX are private companies in the United States. One's in Texas and one's in California. And they both have been working on, on space capsules or space vehicles for years now. The money is going to go towards the completion of both of these Project so to to complete both of the capsules, and when the space shuttle retired in 2011, when we realized that we we're in trouble, we don't have a way to put astronauts into space. The U.S. had to spend a ton of money, upwards of 70 million U.S. dollars or 50 million euros, to pay for one seat uh, to get a ride to the International Space Station, and this was done on the Russian Soyuz vehicles. Beyond the money, there was also scheduling problems, and you know we just didn't have control over, you know, the when and how. So in 2010, President Obama commanded that, look, we need to solve this problem. We need to uh, to somehow make it so we can have more control over when U.S. astronauts get sent into outer space. And they came up with the idea of having like this competition or, you know, a way for, for companies to uh, to get seeded money so they can start programs and so that they can finally finish them and, you know, eventually make space capsules so we can put people in outer space. So these two companies are supposed to have finished capsules in late 2017, which I find to be extraordinarily exciting because that's really close. Yeah, that's going to come very quickly. Yep. The initial investment that NASA made was $1.5 billion, and th- that money went to three different companies. It went to Boeing, SpaceX, and the third company is called Sierra Nevada. Uh, Sierra Nevada is now being dropped from the list because NASA decided that they want to take whatever money that they would have split off for them and give it to the other two companies. Boeing is going to get $4.2 billion and the remainder, $2.6 billion, is going to go to SpaceX. Boeing's capsule is called the CST-100, and they are going through final development and safety certification. And the CST-100 is going to ride an Atlas Five rocket from Cape Canaveral, Florida, and it's going to be using the uh, the old standby heat shield and parachutes for reentry. However, as many of you know, and also know that I'm super excited about this, SpaceX's Dragon V2 uses retro rockets, and I don't know about you guys, and I'm being dead serious when I say this, but is there anything more badass than retro rockets? Yeah, they're up there. Come on. Like, how cool is that? Just just picture this. SpaceX Dragon V2 reentering the Earth's atmosphere. You know, goes through the initial, you know, of course, it has to have a heat shield. Goes through that initial burn, you know, comes back in. Everything's crazy hot and all that. And just when you think, you know what? This is when, like, the parachutes need to come out. No, no, these engines just start firing away and slow this freaker down so it lands on landing gear. And the other thing that's cool about it is like they're going to be able to like say where the rocket's going to land. Like it's not like, oh, it's going to re-enter somewhere over here and land somewhere over there. It's like, no, we're going to have it land like on this X. Thank you. <laughs> right? Come on. <laughs> um, and the other that's cool thing awesome. about 
about the Dragon V2 is that in the long run, it might be more expensive to develop it now because of all that advanced technology, but in the long run, it'll be less expensive because they could reuse the same capsule. I believe, what did I say, uh, up to 18 times or, you know, maybe 15 times before they'd have to, you know, take it in for, for some type of rehaul. All they do is they pop in the fuel cells, do a few things. Who's he watchers? Hose it down a couple of times and then back, back <laughs> Change up. the oil. I know. Seriously. <laughs> like it's, it's replace the reusable. washer fluid and it's all good to go. So that's it. You know, it's exciting news. Like we're, we're approaching it. They're not pushing the date. They're holding to the 2017 dates. Everything looks good. You know, we're in the final stages of testing now and, you know, we're going to see people going up a lot more frequently. Very exciting. I'm definitely glad, glad they're holding to the date because I remember when they retired the shuttles in 2011, we all had this feeling of now what? You know, what are we going to do? And oh my gosh, the next generation's so far away. It's going to be like 2017 or something. Well, we're, you know, we're halfway, if not more than halfway there already so we can feel the anticipation it's right on the horizon it'll happen but i just i really hope they can stick i hope they can stick to the 2017 date and there aren't too many delays it's tricky technology you know they got a lot of of course yeah i mean this is one of those things like anything can happen there's so many variables all right well bob you're gonna tell us about another universe bubble thing which what is it with you in bubbles Uh, Stephen Hawking uh, has been in the news recently. He's been saying that the Higgs particle can potentially be a doomsday device that would make Dr. Horrible cackle with glee. Apparently, it could destroy the entire universe by creating a bubble that expands at the speed of light, just sweeping our reality away. So, yeah, sounds pretty nasty. So, if you haven't heard about the Higgs boson, welcome to the podcast. This is the the particle uh, whose existence was confirmed by the LHC a couple of years ago. Uh, with it, or or more technically, the Higgs field basically gives mass to all the particles in the universe that that have it. Now, Hawking has a weird history with the Higgs. He uh, he's never really liked it. It seems he he bet physics professor Gordon Kane a hundred bucks that it would never be discovered, uh, which he paid off, of course. But when he heard of the discovery, he said that physics itself was now actually less interesting. Isn't that sad? I mean, but I just don't understand why he would say that. But uh, most recently, though, in the preface to his new book, Starmus, 50 Years of Man in Space, Hawking made the following claim. The Higgs potential has the worrisome feature that it might become metastable at energies above 100 billion giga electron volts. This could mean that the universe could undergo catastrophic vacuum decay with a bubble of the true vacuum expanding at the speed of light. This could happen at any time and we wouldn't see it com- coming. Yeah, we wouldn't see it coming. Anything coming at you with the speed of light, by definition, you'd have no uh, warning. Uh, the doctor would stop, but I'm not worried. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, some way. So, uh, so I'm curious. Are you guys worried? No, no. Okay, no. How, I, because what can we do? Good. There's not a damn what? thing we can do. <laughs> yeah, there's that. Plus the fact that it's not going to happen. Wait but a th- th- there's a bunch of reasons not to be worried. First of all, Hawking has said a few things in the past few years that that have seemed a little alarmist. Kind of a little surprising. He said in a documentary that if humans ever meet extraterrestrials, we'd likely turn out as well as the Native Americans did when they when they met Columbus. And sure, that this is true. It could a, be right. A, any yeah. any race that could make it to Earth uh, from probably megaparsecs away could potentially just see us as these weird little nematodes in comparison to themselves. They could, you know, they could wipe us out without even knowing or even caring about it. So sure, but uh, and I'm sure the press exaggerated his concerns his concerns a little bit. I wouldn't be surprised. 
They could make it here in less than 12 parsecs, Bob. <laughs> uh, but that's, re- no, it's really just not high on my list of things to be afraid of. I mean, it's just something that is not, should not be a concern at all. The odds, the odds are just so vanishingly small of an encounter like that. And then in, in early 2014, he was quoted as saying that the artificial intelligence, if, if we were ever to create it, uh, could be the biggest event in human history and possibly the last. And okay, he was right about that one. So I want to stress here though, um, I'm not disparaging Stephen Hawking. I, I really love him. He's, uh, you know, it's not my intention to put him in the same league as someone say like, um, oh, Michio Kaku, uh, who's a scientist, uh, who seems to love sound bites above all else, uh, regardless if they're oversimplified, exaggerated, or just totally fucking incorrect. So that's my gratu- that's my annual gratuitous use of the word in the serious podcast. Uh, secondly, you also said shit earlier. FYI. Did I? Oh. Mm-hmm. Mm, yes, you did. Secondly, um. Hawking himself uh, says the following regarding the possibility of humans causing uh, Higgs, Higgs particles to end our existence. He said, a particle accelerator that reaches 100 billion giga electron volts would be larger than the Earth and is unlikely to be funded in the present economic climate. Ha ha. So, uh, so even he doesn't really take it that seriously. So, but still, the theory and the science behind this is is fascinating as hell. So, what they're talking about is a bubble that could that could nucleate in our universe. It could appear in the universe anywhere, either spontaneously or in a highly energetic context. Uh, that that contains the bubble itself contains a lower energy vacuum than the one that we have in our in our space time. Uh, and this bubble would immediately expand at the speed of light and changing the universe, not just destroying it, but changing the universe in a way such that nothing we know about w- would likely exist. Now, this could theoretically happen if if the vacuum of space time is not in its lowest energy state and somehow gets gets kicked or forced into a lower one or even into a, a, a vacuum with such low energy that it's that it's called the true vacuum, which is the absolute lowest energy state possible. So the comparison uh, that's often used is a ball resting in, at the bottom of a valley. So just imagine this ball. And that ball can stay there uh, for a hell of a long time. But if something disturbs it, it could potentially roll out of that valley and go into a deeper one. What could force it could be an incredible concentration of energy or it could just be as simple as a random uh, but a very rare quantum fluctuation that gets this process going. So that's why Hawking refers to our universe as metastable. This means that it could exist in a higher energy state for a trillion years uh, or more and appear stable but could still revert to a lower energy state all of a sudden. So, so there's really three states that our vacuum could be in. It could be unstable, which it's not because it's been this way for far too long. It would have already changed. It could be stable, which means that it would never change, or it could be metastable, which is how it seems our, our universe is right now. It's, this is important. It's actually wrong to say that the Higgs itself can cause this transformation. It's not the Higgs that's going to make, make this happen. So according to the standard model of physics, we can use the mass of the Higgs, which we've recently discovered, and uh, the mass of the top quark, which I think we still need to refine a bit to, to make a calculation. And that calculation would tell us whether or not our vacuum state of the universe is stable or metastable. So it's a result of a calculation that Higgs mass is just one component of that calculation. So right now it seems that the mass of the Higgs is leaning towards a metastable vacuum state for our universe. Uh, but to directly blame it on the Higgs is kind of silly. Bob, you're just a Higgs apologist. 
<laughs> Are you being paid? Are you a shill for Big Higgs? Yes, Big Higgs. Yeah, Big <laughs> Higgs, that's it. Oh, sh- Should have awesome. seen that one coming. That was good. Um, so now here's the good stuff. What would this, what would this bubble do? It's pretty awesome. So we're talking about destruction where the very word destruction is completely inadequate. It's just, we need a new word for this. So as I said, the bubble would expand at the speed of light, wiping out everything that it overtakes. Inside the bubble would be this lower vacuum energy, which means that the laws of physics themselves and all the fields permeating the universe would be different. Cool. Anything that enters this bubble would just disappear in a puff of physics. Adios, Mm -hmm. goodbye, never to be seen again. All the particles and forces and physical laws that we know and, and some of us love could not exist by definition inside this bubble. Atoms and nuclei would break down new particles and fundamental forces and structures would probably arise in their place. Yeah, we'd end up with like a version 2.0 of our universe. So as cool and horrific as that sounds, that an event like this could never happen. It would never happen because basically it would have already happened. It would have happened billions of years ago due to the incredible energies that were involved during the, the cosmic expansion and uh, the very, very early universe. So those energies were so immense that if, if it took a lot of energy to do this, that would have done it. And then the other way to look at it in terms of just pure randomness uh, according to Joseph Lichen, as a theoretical physicist at Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory, he says, uh, if this scenario does come to pass, it won't happen for 10 to the 100 years. So one with 100 zeros after it. I mean, that's a crazy, crazy long time. So uh, we really don't have anything to worry about. All right. Thanks, Bob. So bottom line, don't worry. <laughs> don't panic. Plus, uh, the other bottom line is that this is really cool stuff. Yeah. All right. Well, what do you guys know about schizophrenia? It sucks. I was talking with myself about that the other day. I know it's not it's not multiple personality, it's not, though, right? It's yeah. not no, multiple it's, no, personality misunderstanding. Yeah. Yes. Because the word the word does mean split mind, but it doesn't mean like a right. mind split into two or more personalities. It means that your mental function is split from reality. So yeah, schizophrenia is really a uh, a set of multiple psychiatric disorders that are characterized by a number of Thought disorders. People with schizophrenia can have hallucinations. They can have delusions, which are persistent false beliefs. Um, but specifically, they are, they are persistent false beliefs that can't be explained by cultural factors. So it's something arising from within the person, not just a response to the culture. Um, they have impaired reality testing. They have bizarre thoughts and ideation. Oftentimes they're paranoid, uh, but not always. And they can have a disconnection between thoughts and emotions, or they could lack motivation or activity. There are different subtypes of schizophrenia that are determined by the dominant clinical feature. You know, like there's a paranoid subtype. There's the lack of motivation subtype, for example. Researchers have been trying for a long time, for many years, to try to understand the underlying cause of schizophrenia. One thing that has become clear is that it is there's a there's a large genetic component. Um, identical twins have about a fifty percent concordance, meaning that if one twin has it, the other twin has it. Yeah, fraternal twins or dizygotic twins have between zero and twenty eight percent. I don't know why where the zero comes in, but that was the range that was discovered in studies. You know, so if you're a systematic review of all the different studies showed that the range was from zero to twenty eight percent. concordance is pretty good. That indicates a a very large genetic contribution, which researchers estimate is somewhere between 80 and 85% of the probability that you will develop schizophrenia is determined by your genes. So 
Researchers have been trying to identify those genes, but it's been very difficult. The problem is, well, the problem is we don't know what the problem is, but the, the, the challenge is that when we look at uh, subjects with schizophrenia and we try to correlate that with a specific mutation or sometimes the studies look at what are called single nucleotide polymorphisms, uh, which is basically a single base pair that's different, right, that's changed. They find that it does correlate, but only in a subset of patients, maybe 30 or 40% of patients with schizophrenia might have a specific SNP or, or mutation. It's, it's very hard to really statistically correlate specific mutations with, with any of the clinical syndromes of schizophrenia. It's, and it could be that, that there's just too many of them and different people have different, different mutations. So it's hard to, to find correlations to specific ones. Some researchers are, were concerned that it's, it's possible that our clinical subtypes don't cleave reality in the same place you know, in the correct place. So the, in other words, if there are, whatever the underlying causes of schizophrenia are, they don't divide up the way we're currently dividing up patients with schizophrenia based upon their clinical symptoms. And therefore, basing research on the clinical diagnoses, we're already rigging the game against ourselves going in. Does that make sense? If the paranoid subtype isn't a real thing, then trying to find correlates to the paranoid subtype is, is doomed to failure. This is all leading to a recent series of studies that was, that was just published where researchers took a new approach to this question of what's the correlation between specific mutations and clinical types of schizophrenia. What they did was they used a computer algorithm to look at not just individual mutations, but the interaction among clusters of mutations. They were looking at the effect that having specific groups of mutations have together. And what they found was they found 42 different clusters of specific mutations that had a 70% or greater association with a diagnosis of schizophrenia, meeting the clinical criteria for a diagnosis of one of the schizophrenia subtypes. That's really high. Some of them had an association of 100% correlation in, in their sample. They also demonstrated that, that that predictive value, that correlation, you can't get to that level of correlation just by adding up all the individual predictive value of the individual mutations. There's an extra added effect from the interaction among those mutations. The whole is greater than the sum of the parts. The other thing the researchers did was that they didn't just rely upon the existing clinical subtypes of schizophrenia. They, they used a similar method to look at clusters of symptoms, and they identified eight clusters of symptoms of schizophrenia. What, what, this is an important advance in our understand, understanding of schizophrenia, but it also, I think, the, the bigger picture, it may be more important, and that is researchers who are trying to correlate genes with clinical syndromes, with diseases and disorders, may make tremendous, you know, advances, not just in psychiatry, but in all parts of medicine by using this, this kind of assessment where you're looking at the interaction among clusters of genes rather than just the effects of any one specific gene. I do think that this is particularly true in any kind of neuroscience or brain science because the brain is 
very complicated, obviously. Another, I think, a, a, an important sort of take-home lesson, I think, I do think that the public understanding of genetics still is wallowing a little bit in the a gene for X thinking about things. I know we've, we've talked about this before. Like, is there a gene for homosexuality, for example? Genetics just doesn't work that way. Genes are not blueprints. Genes are a set of instructions that have a certain expression that is influenced by other genes, by the environment, by the biological environment as well as – and, and for, with when you start to deal with the brain, the whole point of the brain is to interact with the external environment. You know, it's, uh, it's essentially you have a dynamic system. There just isn't going to be a clean clinical correlation to a single gene mutation. And there isn't going to either be a clean association with even a cluster of genes because the way genes work and the way the brain works is just too complicated. It's There's dynamic complexity. And so any categories you come up with are going to be fuzzy around the edges and there are going to be exceptions. And there's only going to be a statistical or a probabilistic association, you know, between genes and between the phenotype, right? The, what, the clinical syndrome that results. But still we see headlines where, you know, I do think that like science writers are expressing surprise about the fact that like epigenetics are having an influence on something. Well, yeah, you know, epigenetics is just all the environmental stuff that affects how genes manifest. We're dealing with this level of complexity now where we're going to be making probabilistic associations between clusters of genes with vague clinical syndromes that are fuzzy around the edges, and we're just going to have to live with it. I could deal with it. Good. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, especially if it leads to actual uh, interventions that work for diseases that are notoriously difficult to treat, like schizophrenia. Yeah. You know, it's, I think it's great that we're discovering this sort of stuff. That's always the hope. I mean, the better we understand any any disease, obviously, there's always the hope that that'll lead to more sophisticated treatments. All right, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, Stamps.com. If you own a small business, for instance, you don't want to be running to the post office every other day just to buy stamps or to send out packages. You can actually do everything from your office. You can weigh stuff, you can print postage, you can have the mailman come and pick up packages from you, and you can do it all through stamps.com. Yeah, it's just fifteen ninety nine a month and plus the cost of the post postage that you need. And you know the good news is and Steve like gets so excited about this, which I think is funny, but you never have to go to the post office again. That is very exciting. <laughs> <laughs> you just better calm down, Steve. And right now if you use our promo code, which is SGU you get this special offer. First, it's a no-risk trial, plus a $110 bonus offer. What? Which includes a digital... Yes, $110 bonus offer, which includes a digital scale, which calculates your exact postage for letters and packages, and up to $55 free postage. Don't wait. Well, you could wait a little bit, but not too long. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type SGU. That's stamps.com. Enter SGU. All right, guys. Well, let's get back to our show. This is the next item is I thought was very interesting. We've sort of touched on aspects of it previously, but give us the give us the nutshell here. The National Academy of Sciences has been holding some meetings about the biotech industry. Tell us about that. Yeah, they have National Research Council of the National Academy of Sciences held 
two days of discussions recently on the controversial issue of crop biotechnology as the council is collecting information for a report which they are going to publish in the spring of 2016. To back up for a second, I don't recall, have we mentioned John Entine before? He, his name might have, came, might have come up when we were talking about Mike Adams threatening to kill people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Basically, not, well, you know, yeah. suggesting that wouldn't it, it wouldn't be terrible if, you know, people, uh, who were pro GMO were murdered. <laughs> Basically. I think, I think you're right. Yeah, I he think was, you're he right. was, John. He was one of the people on the hit list. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he was, yeah. I, I seem to remember a few other familiar yeah. names on, on that list as well, unfortunately. John is a senior fellow at the Center for Health and Risk Communication and the Statistical Assessment Service at George Mason University. Uh, he's a writer, writes at Forbes magazine, another magazine called Ethical Corporation. He's an Emmy award-winning TV producer, and most importantly, he's a very good skeptic when it comes to analyzing the data about genetically modified organisms, or GMOs for short. He's also the director of an organization called the Genetic Literacy Project, and their catchphrase is, where science trumps ideology. I really like that phrase. Uh, their mission statement in part reads, the GLP explores the intersection of DNA research, media, and policy to disentangle science from ideology. He was one of the many invited guests to make a presentation to the National Research Council. Uh, here are just a couple of, here's a quick few things that John had to say. Here's what he said. The central issue that you must assess is the safety of GM foods. Hopefully you will focus not just on specific facts, but also on the process of science, reproducibility of studies, skepticism of one-off research, weight of evidence, and willingness to revise theories in the light of new reproducible data which is awesome. He also said this, In that context, many of those who maintain that GMOs are potentially harmful, while sincere for the most part, are engaging not in science, but in politics. And he gives an example about how anti-GMOs organizations often claim that the safety of genetically engineered foods cannot be assured because big agriculture funds most GMO research and there have been almost no long-term safety studies. And he says that is just wrong. He goes on to extensively sort of point out why the claims of the anti-GMO organizations range from anywhere from off-point to outright lies, and certainly they're not relying on scientific evidence. But in his concluding remarks, he makes special emphasis on several key points. One of them is about false balance. He says this, False balance is a term in journalism that refers to presenting issues in which there is an overwhelming consensus in a way that makes it seem as if there are two fairly equal contrary viewpoints or two spokespeople of equal credibility. And a sizable piece of his presentation to the council dealt with false balance. He wisely used some of his precious time to make sure the council understood that not everyone invited to make a presentation at the council meeting were of equal status. Because, why? There were several anti-GMO organizations representing at the council hearing as well. And we can only hope the members of the council are able to weigh the quality of the evidence and the data and the proposals put before them, as opposed to treating the anti-GMOers as equal representatives on the issues of GMOs. And that's kind of, you know, one of the most important things, I think, about what he had to say to the council. And hopefully they did heed his words. So that was part of it that really interested me because we we've been having this same 
sort of discussion about the anti-vaccine movement, for example. What he said was he understands that the National Academy of Science wants to include critics because if they didn't include them, then they would obviously complain and they wouldn't look at the results of the council as being legitimate and they would accuse it of being stacked and biased. So they want to include the voice of critics. And Entine was saying, yeah, he gets that. But what you have to understand is they're not going to go, they're not going to stand by the results because you involved them. What's going to happen is they're going to use their involvement in order to promote their own legitimacy. They're going to say that we were consulted by the National Academy of Sciences. They're going to condemn the results if they don't say what they like. And they're going to criticize the process anyway. So what are you really buying by having, by making them part of the process? All you're doing is lending legitimacy to ideological groups who are not scientific organizations or they're biased scientific organizations. Um, which is identical to the conversation we had about the National Institutes of Health or the CDC inviting anti-vaccinationists to consult on vaccine studies or vaccine panels or reviews where, and that's exactly what did happen. They, once the results came out, they condemned the process that they, that they themselves had participated in because they didn't like the results. So I think that he's right, but it is a dilemma because if you don't include them, they'll probably be even more critical. And the, the real question is, what's the best thing in terms of the public perception? I don't know. It's kind of, it's a dilemma because it really, you're going to lose either way. You know, either, you know, you'll, you'll justify their accusation that the panel was rigged or you're going to lend false legitimacy to pseudoscientific organizations. So it's kind of a lose-lose. Maybe we as science communicators can kind of do a better job of really cutting to that core. So some of the critics said this is like inviting creationists to a panel on evolution. And although I'll give you another, I'll give you a counterexample. When the UK did their uh, homeopathy evaluation a few years ago, they took testimony from homeopaths who, of course, then condemned the process. But I do think that the fact that they said, all right, homeopaths, give us your best shot. Make your best case. Explain to us how this works. Show us the evidence that it works. And they utterly failed. And there was some value in saying, hey, we let them make their case. And it was unimpressive. They didn't have the science or evidence to back, to back up their claims. Well, absolutely. Like in a, in a political context, yes. Yeah. Like I think it's different when you're talking about a political context compared to a purely scientific context. And especially when the party in question has already made their case, which has often happened in a scientific context, though not in a political context. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Cause the, the, yeah, the, the UK homeopathy study was, it was, uh, parliament essentially. It was, it was politicians just making policy recommendations where this is the scientific organization reviewing the science. So it is a different context. Steve, that reminds me of uh, when we <clears throat> interviewed the Warrens and said, give us your best evidence from all your decades yeah. of ghost hunting. And they gave us a video that we pre- pretty much ripped apart in, uh, in under a day. Yeah. Um, it's a similar idea. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, again, it kind of depends on, it, I do think it's a lose lose, you know, because you're going to get criticized either way. It's going to be the, the very existence of such pseudoscientific organizations or ideologically motivated organizations is the problem. I don't know that you're going to mitigate that, that by, if you exclude them, they'll, they'll exploit that. If you include them, they'll exploit that. 
but they are not following the evidence. You're not going to convince them. You know, if they were going to follow the evidence, they would have done so already. I mean, every scientific organization and health organization in the world has looked at the evidence and declared that GMOs are safe, and they reject that. So, you know, one more organization is not going to make a difference. All right, well, Rebecca, please tell me that I don't have to give up my artificial sweeteners. I'm so sorry, Steve. (laughs) This is not, you know, often we've talked about the previous artificial sweetener scares where, you know, does does Diet Coke cause cancer? And uh, this is not that bad. It just maybe causes diabetes. (laughs) What some researchers have published today uh, the day that we record this podcast in nature is a really fascinating and quite well done, I think, study, which seems to suggest that consuming a variety of artificial sweeteners, uh, saccharin, aspartame, uh, sucralose can actually cause a spike in your blood glucose levels. That's a bit of a strange finding because one of the things about artificial sweeteners, like the reason why we consume them is because we cannot digest them. So you might wonder if we're not digesting them, how do they cause such a significant change in your body's chemistry? Well, uh, the researchers identified changes in the gut bacteria, uh, basically. You know, we've talked about this before that you have this whole microbiome inside your stomach and, uh, you can change that using things like antibiotics and fecal transplants, which are becoming all the rage these days and which were used in this study. And apparently, Sugar substitutes. What they found, uh, first they, uh, they did studies first on mice, as one does, and found that when they gave these artificial sweeteners to mice with gut microbiota, they found that those mice had these, uh, spikes in blood glucose levels. And when they gave the same sweeteners to mice that did not have these microbiota, they did not see those uh, spikes. And they performed fecal transplants to show that, yeah, it is in fact the microbiota that are causing this difference. And then to follow up, they also did some studies on humans. So the first study was 381 non-diabetic people who took questionnaires And what they found was that people who consumed more artificial sweeteners tended to have higher glucose levels and worse glucose tolerance. And they had a different microbiota than the uh, other people who did not uh, take in a lot of artificial sweeteners. And then to follow that up, they took seven volunteers who didn't tend to uh, ingest artificial sweeteners and they uh, monitored their glucose levels. And what they found was that when they gave these volunteers artificial sweeteners, sure enough, uh, the majority of them, four out of seven, showed a worse glycemic response uh, compared to their baseline. 
And the people who didn't have that bad response had different uh, microbiomes. So basically what they're saying is that for a certain segment of the population, maybe a very large segment of the pop- population, taking in artificial sweeteners drastically changes your gut microbiome in a way that could give leave you at risk of uh, certain uh, glucose issues, including diabetes. So obviously more studies are going to have to be done to see exactly how drastic the problem is in humans and how we might be able to go about addressing the problem, maybe by changing our microbiomes in some way. But as it is, it is kind of a huge finding. Uh, I'm seeing this passed around by all of my science communicator friends in a holy crap kind of way, because apparently we all subsist entirely on Cherry Coke Zero. And this is devastating to our entire industry. Um, Also, because uh, nature even found this so crazy that they issued uh, like special alert press release. <laughs> so everybody's talking about it. Everybody will continue talking about it, I'm sure, in the days to come. And I'm hoping more studies come out that make the picture not quite so bleak because I I really need that Coke Zero. I really need it, Steve. So what do there, you think, Steve? There, I, mm. there is some criticism of the study. It seems like I, I, I tried to find out what other scientists were saying about it, try to see what the what the general reaction is. Most people say, yeah, they, it looks like they did a pretty tight study. There, it seems rigorous. It was, you know, the, what they did made sense. But one big problem was, uh, that the results are just not in line with other studies that have been done. For example, uh, about a year ago, there was an epidemiological study published that looked at tens of thousands of people. And they did not find any association between artificially sweetened soft drinks and diabetes. That's pretty reassuring. They did find it between a, a connection between drinking sugared drinks and diabetes. So I mm-hmm. still think that the consensus of scientific data that we have says that you certainly wouldn't go from drinking uh, drinks with artificial sweeteners to, to drinking drinks with sugar in it. That's probably not likely to be a beneficial switch to make. You know, obviously you can always go to drinking completely unsweetened things like water. But the other, uh, other scientists pointed out that it's very odd that we would see the same reaction to three completely different chemicals, you know, saccharin, sucralose, and aspartame. That's real. What are the chances of that? That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. And there really wasn't anything to tie them together. Though some of the, some people, you know, looking, looking over the study said, really? You know the the uh, the data may only apply to saccharin and not the other two, you know, because they did kind of mix them together. But if you break down the data, it looks like it. You know, maybe all of the effect is really being seen in the saccharin, which would be nice because you know I don't eat saccharin. I have no problem with that. Yeah, <laughs> but Steve, I'm confused about your statement. Aren't they se- you know separating these chemicals and testing them independently? Well, for example, uh, one critic pointed out that the data with Aspartame actually, the effect size was much smaller, so they dropped it. They dropped the the aspartame and then used saccharin, which is where you really see the effect. So that's why he concluded maybe this is an effect just with saccharin. You know, one one critic said 
The authors are confounding their conclusions by addressing all three non-caloric artificial sweeteners together. Uh, so he, he, they believe that the conclusions are misleading. First of all, this was published in a non-clinical journal, uh, more of a basic science journal, and that a clinical journal would have never allowed the kind of imprecise clinical conclusions that they were making. So maybe on a basic science level, things were rigorous, but when they got to the clinical applications, they really weren't very rigorous, and the journal let them get away with shenanigans that a clinical medical journal wouldn't have let them get away with. That's I'm hearing that from a number of different researchers, and that sounds legitimate. So, and also, you know, the seven people, four out of seven, that's a really weak result. I mean, that's just a small number of individuals, so it's hard to extrapolate yeah, I mean, too much that, from that. That obviously wasn't the crux of this study. To me, that was a, an interesting follow-up yeah. and something that does demand further. To me, that's like a tiny preliminary study tied yeah, exactly. on to the end of Exactly. That's exactly study. what it is. It's yeah. a tiny preliminary study just to say, hey, maybe it also applies in humans because all the rest of the data yeah. is in mice and mice are very different than people. They metabolize sugar different than we do. They have different microbiota than we do. So- all well, they did also, I, I didn't mention that they did do uh, human to mouse fecal transplants, which is a hilarious visual, <laughs> but they probably weren't actually in the same room at the same time. Uh, <laughs> and they got the same results. Uh, humans with uh, those, um, that micro, those microbiomes that left them apparently at risk of these glucose problems being transplanted into mice showed exactly the same problems. Those without yeah. the problems transplanted into mice showed no problems. So that was an extra level of The it. results are definitely intriguing, but they, they're certainly not conclusive, especially as applied to people. And they kind of raise as many questions as they answer. So I, the, the, the bottom line, line seems to be for now, don't panic. And you, I wouldn't, you know, start drinking sugary drinks because you're afraid that aspartame is going to give you diabetes. We're a long way from yeah. proving that. But certainly this require, this does raise interesting points and requires further research. And I'll, I'll also mention one other thing, which is that, uh, you know, they are, talking for the most part about fairly large amounts of sweeteners, not the large amounts that we saw in the artificial sweeteners cause cancer in rats sort of study yeah. where you have to eat like the equivalent of the Empire State Building in sugar or whatever. Uh, but they are... You know, something like, uh, if you, if you eat nine packets of sweet and low a day or, or something like that, uh, that is where this study is looking for, for results. I drink one can of Diet Coke or Coke Zero or whatever a day ish. Uh, yeah. I, uh, I doubt. Probably yeah. that's not the, the volume that they're most concerned about, but right. probably you know, not. It, it, if, if it does change, uh, the microbiome in in such a drastic way at slightly larger levels it is something that i take into consideration when i'm you know considering the healthiest diet for me and if i'm having issues with my uh digestive system you know that's something to certainly consider i think okay well thanks rebecca yeah complicated story actually and i think we're going to have to see you know, definitely this is not, the story isn't over and we'll be following this as new research gets done. Well, evidence, who's that noisy time? I'm going to play for you the who's that noisy from episode number 479. Here we go. 
With me, it started with the moon, believe it or not. I, when I was a student, let me see, I was 13 then. So, any, any guesses? I tried. I couldn't think of anything, Ev. Gentleman's name is, was, and is known forever as Werner Magnus Maximilian Freiherr von Braun. Werner von Braun. <laughs> My favorite yeah. Nazi. <laughs> <laughs> Every everyone's favorite Nazi. Ah, <laughs> uh, so yes. So okay, he was uh, integral in the Nazi buildup of rocket technology, V two rockets, of course, that were launched against uh, primarily England and uh, actually caused uh, quite a bit of damage. But Werner uh, grew up, you know, as a boy, more fascinated with astronomy with space with space exploration with wanting to travel eventually beyond the con- the confines of earth until you know unfortunately the third reich came along and sort of put a crimp in his style there and in order for him to still pursue his activities and uh studies in rocket technology he was it's questionable as to whether he was forced to join the party or willingly join the party but in any case it was rather convenient for him to become part of the Nazi party during those years. And uh, it's sort of, you know, he, he was, he expressed, and from what I've read, from what I've seen in interviews, expressed, you know, certainly regret and uh, the fact that he had to curb his ambitions for space exploration. In, instead, he had to go into more of a military uh, way of things with his rocket technology. But, you know, certainly did all he could to redeem himself by joining up with the United States once the war was over and being an integral part in the United States, the United States, uh, space exploration program. And, uh, of course, the, uh, most famously, the Saturn V launch vehicle, which, uh, made, made the Apollo, uh, the Apollo missions possible. Did anybody get it? Yes, ab- absolutely. A few people did get it correct, but there can be only one winner. This week's winner is Heptron from the message boards. Well done. Heptron, your name goes into the drawing at the end of the year. Maybe you'll join us for science or fiction in early 2015. We have a brand new noisy for you this week. Let's see if you can figure out what is the cause of this noise. Let's play it. I'll give you a little hint. It was a taken from a clip that appeared in some uh, some recent uh, news and uh, a video that's going around the web these days. So it's a little hint for you. Good luck. Give us your answer. WTN at theskepticsguide.org is the email. Or go ahead and post it on our message boards, sguforums.com. And as I say every week, and I mean it from the bottom of my heart, good luck, everyone. Thank you, Evan. Thank you. All right. Well, we got a couple of interesting questions to talk about this week. First question comes from Marcus, who gives his location as Europe. And Marcus writes, I'm going to read part of the email because it's a bit long. He says, first of all, thank you for a great show. It has really been a life changer for me as I finally have found voices to listen to that actually seem to observe life from the same perspective as I do. However, I have a serious issues when it comes to adapting the skeptical attitude. I find myself writing posts on social media in response to pseudo-bullshit quite often. These posts can be anything from a paragraph long to multiple pages where I explain why the person I am responding to is wrong. However, despite having the facts on my side, I usually end up deleting these posts because I get really bad feeling, because I get a really bad feeling when I publish them. 
I believe this might have something to do with my youth where I stopped correcting people in exchange for acceptance, which later also made me skip college-level studies. However, I finally started to work on my degree at the age of 25. I need help here. If I can't promote science or anything I believe or anything I believe in without feeling bad about myself, I don't know what to do. Any kind of advice or ideas would be greatly appreciated. What do you guys think about poor Marcus here? He wants to be a skeptic, but he feels bad when he tells people that they're wrong. Being a skeptic doesn't necessarily mean being an asshole. You know, skepticism no. is that's just by one of the nature. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the, the two aren't. You you could be an asshole if you want, but there's also the fact that at its heart, like skepticism is a compassionate exercise. You know, you want to prevent people from being taken advantage of or from being scammed, and if you come from Come to it from that direction as opposed to thinking, I don't know, like, oh, these people are idiots and I know everything and I'm going to correct them now. You know, that's, yeah, okay, that can come across as condescending or rude. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, I've never really had an issue being, you know, talking to people about topics like, for instance, horoscopes or, or something like that, psychics. And being open about my skepticism, but not being a total jerk. Yeah, I mean, so I agree. Uh, I think for me, part of it is that I try not to care too much what other people think, especially like if someone's going to think badly of me for promoting science and skepticism, hmm, probably don't care about that. But um, you're absolutely right. I mean, there there are ways to correct someone or to introduce them to information that might be more reliable than what they're depending on without being directly confrontational and without certainly without being negative or insulting. You don't even have to say you're wrong. You could say, that's interesting. I When I looked into it, this is what I found. What do you think about that? And then give yeah. them a reference to reliable science-based information and, you know, and then engage them in more of a discussion. I know it's easy you know, it's, it's, I certainly I have this gut reaction when I'm you know around friends and my guard is down. It's just like, Puh, that's nonsense. You know, it's when you hear something that is nonsense, that's going to be your immediate reaction. But when you're with colleagues or or acquaintances or at work or with people you don't know, um, depending on the situation, you definitely want to gear you know how you deal with people based upon your relationship. And you know, you're you're talking about you know writing to to anonymous people on the internet. It absolutely depends on well, what you're, what are you trying to accomplish there? What are your goals there? If you want to, I, I personally think it's better to try to engage with people, and if that's your goal, you know, you, you know, I would be unapologetic about defending science and reason, but you know, you don't, as Rebecca said, you could do it in a way that's constructive and that's not insulting and belittling. It's a little bit more complicated than the the idea that we're reading into here. I, I think that he might be feeling like something is almost like blocking him emotionally and i think you know part of it is getting over the social anxiety of having to like have a serious discussion with friends and family or whoever about about these things i mean if you feel that they're powerful enough or important enough to talk about it then what you need to do is just take the time to allow yourself to practice getting good at communicating and and you know becoming a better communicator so people can can listen to you without feeling threatened and can have a, a legitimate conversation 
you know, and there's a few quick rules that you could follow that can help. One is, you know, try to be compassionate and don't insult anybody right out of the gate. Like just listen to them and listen to, you know, why they believe in what they believe and try to, try to, you know, try to be compassionate to the other person by understanding their perspective. Then Phil Plate said it. Lots of people have repeated it. Don't be a dick. There's no reason to be a dick. You don't win people over by being being rude to them or whatever. Like all you're doing at that point is, to well, some people is they make themselves feel better or feel like they're empowered, which you don't need to do that. Like if you really want to help people, then you know lead with compassion and understanding, and then be patient. Take the time. Don't try to convert someone in a night. Like give them time to understand concepts. You know, give them things to read. Help them find their way. You know, a lot of people aren't lucky like most of us who you know, found skepticism at some point and or now we fully understand it. Like a lot of people are completely blind to the whole thing. You know, be there, Carl Sagan, you know, That's take your time. Excellent point about patience, Jay. I always tell people that patience is one of the virtues that every skeptic needs and should have, especially when dealing with family members, loved ones, other people that they are closer with rather than strangers on the internet. It does pay off in the long run, but you really, really have to have a lot of patience if you're going to, you know, keep your own wits about you as well through the whole process. And if you really do care about the end result, you have no, you really have no choice but to, um, try to, uh, hang in there and be persistent, show patience and not get exasperated along the way. What if it's actually even a little bit more dramatic than, than you guys think? What if it's, I mean, I'm trying to, maybe I'm reading between the lines here a little bit, but, uh, what if this is like a, a real, like full blown anxiety situation or a real, like severe avoidant personality scenario we're talking about? Yeah, Bob, I was gonna, I was gonna bring up. So, like, Marcus, we're making very general statements that would apply to anybody, not, and we, we obviously from an email, we don't know you and we can't make specific recommendations to you in particular. And like Bob's raising other possibilities. So what I would say is, well, certainly our generic advice hopefully is useful that if you're at the point where you feel like you're having difficulty functioning, like deleting multiple page comments because you're anxious about, about being mean, uh, and you, you feel like this may be relating to, you know, childhood baggage. You know, some people find it useful to go to a counselor or somebody, a professional to talk about and start to work through stuff like that. It's very common for people in their twenties, you know, to be making that transition from their childhood baggage to a functional adult and, you know, having a counselor to talk to to help will accelerate the process of working through stuff like that. So again, we can't make specific recommendations for you. We're just throwing out general ideas that you might want to think about. That, that Steve, I helpful. thought you were going to say transferring from your childhood baggage to your adult baggage. Yeah, right. Well, that is that is basically what happens, but hopefully it's a little bit more functional. It's good because your adult baggage has more room. It's just easier to put stuff in there. It matches Yeah, it's an interesting – it's a good point that you bring up. Like, sure, like there are people, especially young people like that, that are getting over social anxiety or you know fear of public speaking, all sorts of things like that. It takes a lot of time. you got to work on it. Whatever, whatever it is that's stopping you. If you need to do it, you know, maybe, you know, maybe that isn't the way for you to communicate. Maybe you need to, to try it a different way or something that, that's easier for you to, to deal with. But in the end, it really, if you're just having a normal spectrum of anxiety, then you need to, you know, you need to struggle through it. And, and during your process of maturing, you'll get over that fear and you'll find that the public speaking and, and the communication will come a lot easier because you won't be thinking about it when you're doing it. You'll just be doing it. All right. Well, thank you, Marcus, and good luck with your future skeptical endeavors. 
Well, everyone, we're taking a break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors, Squarespace.com. So years ago, I started using Squarespace. And since I started using Squarespace, they have completely updated all of their backend software, meaning that everything is a lot easier to use. You know, they're just continuing to improve their product. The templates are better. They're totally modern. They have responsive designs on their templates, which means that the template size and shape changes depending on the device that you're looking on. That's awesome. So you're saying it's simple and easy, has a beautiful design. You can drag and drop content, which anybody can do as far as far as building a website. And you know what? Affordable plans start at $8 a month and include a free domain name if you sign up for a year. But wait, it gets even more affordable because you can start a trial with no credit card and start building your website today. Go to Squarespace, use the code SGU and get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for SGU. Again, go to squarespace.com and enter the offer code SGU to get 10% off your first purchase. Good job, Rebecca. Thanks, Bob. All right, guys. Well, let's get back to our show. It's time for Science or Fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake. And then I challenge my panelists captains to tell me which one is the fake. Are you guys ready for this week? Oh, yeah. All right. No I theme. Was ready yesterday. No theme. No theme. Three regular news items. Here we go. Item number one. A long-term study of tree growth in Europe finds that trees have been growing between 32 and 77% faster than they were in 1960. Item number two, a scientist has demonstrated that the current Ebola outbreak has outstripped current mathematical models that have been used to predict the ultimate extent of previous outbreaks, making the current outbreak unpredictable. And item number three, the latest tornado statistics for the U.S. indicate that the number of annual tornadoes has increased by about 20% between 1964 and 2012. All right, Rebecca, go first. So trees are growing faster uh, compared to 1960. I like how it's a long-term study. Well, obviously, it's a long-term study. <laughs> Although, I guess you could just cut some trees down and look at them and look at the rings. I guess that, I don't know, maybe global warming something, something, blah, blah. We're all going to die. The trees are going to grow too fast and turn sentient and murderous like Day of the Triffids. <laughs> Second Day of the Triffids reference in this. You Wow. First time that's happened. Yikes. Ebola is unpredictable because it has outstripped current mathematical models. I know that it's. it was recently announced that it was going to get much, much worse before it got any better. But I haven't seen anything about it being so bad that it defies all mathematical models and being completely unpredictable. I mean, I can't imagine. That's tough for me to think like, that they wouldn't be able to come up with some new models based on current information in order to make it more predictable. So that's weird. And tornadoes increasing by 20% between 1964 and 2012. Again, blah, 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 global warming. I know that, you know, the severity of storms has increased in that time. If the severity of things like hurricanes increases, then surely that means the number of tornadoes would be increasing as well. But maybe that's why this one is actually the fiction, because it seems really obvious. But 
that said, I'll go with the one that just, I haven't read any of these, so good job, Steve. (laughs) I'll just have to go with the one that seems the wrongest, which is the Ebola unpredictability one. And I'll say that's the fiction. Okay, Evan? The tree growth in Europe, 32 and 77, been growing between 32 and 77% faster than they were in 1960. It's a little weird, I think, how that one's phrased. Growing between 32% and 77% faster? Why, why, why that range? And why, uh, why any range? You know, can't you just state it as one percentage? I don't know. I'll clarify that. It's different species of trees. Oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you. Well, wouldn't that be indicative of a uh, higher concentration of oxygen uh, related to tree growth, plant growth in general? That's my first thought. But that kind of, I don't know that that's, that can't be true, right? I mean, carbon, yes, but oxygen? So I don't know. The Ebola one, outstripped current mathematical models. This one has me puzzled as well, uh, only because obviously with Ebola in the news so prominently these days, that there's a ton of information out there floating around as to the severity, the mutations of this thing you know is it going airborne where is it going and so forth who's got it is it out of control is it under control a lot of controversy there but a scientist has demonstrated that the Ebola outbreak has outstripped current mathematical models okay i i can see one a scientist demonstrated it's not like it's a consensus or anything the tornado statistics uh, increased about 20 percent between 1964 and 2012 it's been, we've had some horrific tornadoes in recent years. It's interesting it stopped 2012, 2013. Data may not be available yet, I suppose. But I know in the last few years, boy, we've had some real devastating ones here in the United States. Um, but severity does not equal frequency uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Just take hurricanes, for example. So I don't know that this one is correct. This one is striking me wrong. I think it's between the trees and the hurricanes for me. Uh, hurricanes, uh, tornadoes. I think it's the tornadoes. I don't think they've increased in number. I think they've increased in severity. Okay, Bob. Um, yeah, these are good. I haven't seen any of these. Kind of pisses me off. So yeah, the trees. Yeah, that seems like a lot, especially 70%. 77 seems really dramatic. I could see something though with, uh, the amount of, of average sunshine or perhaps even changes in the soil, I think that could probably have a dramatic effect. Um, so that seems plausible to me. The uh, the Ebola one actually makes sense. I have heard some things, not, not specifically what they're saying here, but I have heard some things about the outbreak uh, just going beyond what they th- they thought it would, it would go beyond. And that, but that was a while ago. It's not a new item that I read. Yeah, I, th- I think that I think that's possible. Uh, that that would make it unpredictable. If you if you have no models, then it, it, by definition, I think it's uh, it's currently unpredictable. Yeah, the tornadoes twenty percent just seems just seems too much too much of an increase for me, uh, and for that reason, I'm going to say it's fiction. And Jay, okay, the one about the trees. I imagine that if temperatures were rising, that it would have an effect on plant life. Absolutely. Um, Evan said something like, if there's more trees, then there'd be more oxygen. And I'm not sure how measurable that is. You know, maybe not even the number of trees, but the relative size of trees, you know. So I guess that would equate to pretty much the same thing. But, and you know, like I read recently that there's, you know, there's an increase in the global CO2 level. And I wonder if that has something to do with this. But that one makes sense. 
A second one about the Ebola outbreak. Um, this is scary. Um, this outstripping the current mathematical models. Yeah. Um, that means that it's not measurable, which is really scary if that's true. And I could see that. I could see them not, you know, being able to deal with how to measure all, you know, everything, you know, every outbreak that happens with previous outbreak math that they've developed or whatever, like ways of, of divining, um, you know, what it's going to do and how it's going to spread and all that, which means they just need to, to come up with another way to measure it. Um, so I could see that, even though that, that feels like maybe, that's a maybe for me. This last one about the tornadoes. Um, now, as you know, I don't like tornadoes. And I don't like them mainly because they kill people and break things. Uh, yes, they are something that I, I, you know, strangely enjoy looking at, just like sharks. And I hate sharks for the same reason, because they're, they're bad. Um, but uh, I would know if tornado numbers have increased by 20% because I read about tornadoes and I have not read this. And unless Steve like literally pulled a study off of today's news, I'd know this. So I'm going to go with the other people and say this one is the fake. Okay. So Rebecca, you're all by yourself. Great. The guys all think the tornadoes is fiction. Rebecca, you said the Ebola? Uh, Yeah. So that means that you all agree. A long-term study of tree growth in Europe finds that trees have been growing between 32 and 77% faster than they were in 1960. But I do have a question for all of you guys, and that is, who speaks yes. for the trees? <laughs> the Lorax? Uh, is that a thing? Ah, uh, nice. You all think this one is science, and this yeah. one is science. <laughs> all right. Science. Yeah, baby. Team skeptic. You guys kind of were dancing around why. So it is interesting, though. So that's that's a pretty big – I was shocked by that, up to 77%. So there's also different ways of measuring tree growth. You can measure the growth of individual trees. You can measure the number of trees, the growth of how big the stand of trees is getting. This is the – this was looking at individual tree growth. Interestingly, if you look at like the number of trees in stands, as the trees get bigger, the number of trees goes down because – Trees take up more space. space. Bigger trees take up more space. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, is this a bad thing in any way, though, Steve? Like, so the not the possible cause. They don't know exactly why this is happening. Then these are also these are like specific experimental stands of trees that they have been following for years. So actually, since how long do you think they've been following these? Thirty-four years. years. Since eighteen sixty. Eighteen sixty. Yeah, long time. One hundred and one hundred and fifty years. One hundred fifty-four years. Wow. So, uh, what they found was, was, so the thinking is that it's, it's actually not, it's not the presence of oxygen that would increase the growth of trees. The increased growth of trees might increase oxygen, but, um. Right. Yeah. I got that backwards. Yeah. Although, if you remember from the recent Cosmo series, that when the tree dies and it decays, it, it sort of reverses the process. It burns up all the oxygen and mm-hmm. right. returns its carbon back to the environment. But anyway, uh, but the extra carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is food for trees, so that would help the trees grow faster. Food but also, there, there's more nitrogen in the soil, uh-huh. and there's a longer uh-huh. growing season, longer growing season, because uh, because of, of warming. Yeah, so that's crazy. Those are the three possible factors mm-hmm. here. But yeah, but up to up to a 77 percent increase in the the rate at which trees are growing. That's uh, pretty impressive. I guess we should cut them down faster. Well, they said it could be actually a boon to, you know, various industries, wood industry, paper industry. 
um, to have them grow faster. All right, let's move on to number two. A scientist has demonstrated that the current Ebola outbreak has outstripped current mathematical models that have been used to predict the ultimate extent of previous outbreaks, making the current outbreak unpredictable. Rebecca, you think this one is the fiction. The guys all think this one is science. And this one is science. Sorry, Rebecca. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually there is <laughs> one tiny noise. little there is a there is an I, I discovered after I wrote this from further reading, there's an error in the way I wrote that sentence because oh. the CDC has now declared that this is that this is an epidemic, not just an outbreak. Outbreaks are local, epidemics are widespread, and pandemics are global. So this has been upgraded from an, from an outbreak to an epidemic. This is the first Ebola epidemic in history. Not good. Not good. There is a mathematical model that came out of the University of Warwick called the Warwick model that has successfully replicated the uh, all past Ebola outbreaks. So you could use it to predict how big it will ultimately get before it burns itself out. Uh, but the current... Uh, a, a researcher by the name of Dr. Thomas House, Dr. House, analyzed the data from the current, the, a lot of outlets are still calling it an outbreak, although again, now it's technically uh, epidemic, and found that the model, it basically breaks the model. The model does not apply. It's too big. It's spreading too unpredictably, too fast, and that the mathematical model cannot predict how big this is going to get. So it actually has broken the model. I tried to get some updated statistics on the number of Cases and deaths. Um, it's kind of a moving figure. We're definitely up over 3,000 cases, over 1,500 deaths. The death rate is hovering around 50%. There have been healthcare worker deaths. It is spread to at least five West African countries. No, at this point, no one can say how big it's going to get. Some, re- some, uh, outlets are reporting that it's overwhelming. The healthcare infrastructure in Western Africa and that basically the system is collapsing and that it's going to get really bad. It's still going to get worse before it gets better because it's essentially overwhelming resources. As you may have seen, uh, President Obama uh, committed 3,000 troops uh, to help get things under control and a certain amount of money. A lot of people are saying that this is too little too late. And I've read some interesting, you know, commentary that just the world has failed in this case in that we really didn't have anything in place to handle the Ebola you know, Ebola outbreaks in general. That essentially, like we put this fire out whenever it crops up rather than having something in place that is already you know, ready to respond. And like what? What could we do? You know, like I, I've thought about this. Like what else could we do other than – Like just having people and resources that are there that are re- re- ready to do a rapid response. Uh, as I said, instead of relying upon the local healthcare infrastructure, which rapidly gets overwhelmed, and then we send in people and money. But it's – the thing about an outbreak is that time is everything. You know, and by the time we get geared up, it's already – gotten a lot bigger than it ever had to be. Who knows? We might have been able to nip this in the bud if we had resources on the ground. It's not like we don't know what's going to happen. It's going to happen with unfairly, with fair regularity. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, you know, I still, it's it's a little undefined. Like, you, we have to have 
health p- professionals like at the ready, more health professionals, like who's going to pay for that? We're, you know, I don't the get The World Health like, Organization? How well funded is the World Health Organization? The UN? Well, like well now, like the we're we're committing money to put out this fire. We, that money would have been much more effective if we spent it a year ago to to react to the outbreak when it first occurred, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so you end up spending the money. It's just not as effective. It's not as efficient. You're better off spending it preventively rather than reactively. The World Health Organization is warning that the number of cases could rise to 20,000. However, right. other researchers have – the estimates have been as high from other researchers as hundreds of thousands. And that may be an exaggeration, but there are researchers, people, you know, who should know what they're talking about, who saying it could rise as high as hundreds of thousands. Although, again, the who is saying 20,000. Although this guy, uh, Dr. House, is saying, we don't know. We can't model it. Our, our models are not adequate. We just, there's no way of knowing. And he also pointed out, again, there's unpredictable variables in here. Things happen that you can't predict. Um, that can make it a lot worse. And so, you know, we can't, that we simply can't account for. And I think that, you know, the fact, the most worrisome thing that I've read from multiple sources is essentially that that the infrastructure is getting overwhelmed and it's basically collapsing. Um, And that there's also lots of non-Ebola deaths that are being caused by the epidemic. For example... People may delay going to the hospital for something like malaria or pneumonia because they're afraid that they will be thrown into a uh, an Ebola isolation facility, and they don't want that to happen. So they'll delay getting treatment for like a treatable pneumonia because they don't want to be misdiagnosed as Ebola. So malaria and and pneumonia deaths are also rising. They may not be counted as Ebola deaths, but they are. But they are extra deaths that would not have occurred if the system weren't being overwhelmed by the Ebola epidemic. So it's bad. It's bad. You know, we're we're living through the first Ebola epidemic, and this it's it, there there have already been more deaths than all Ebola outbreaks previously. Yeesh. Well, that's horrible. Yeah, yeah that's, that's, that's bad. Some serious stuff. Mm. I it took it's, a second for that to sink that, in. That's it's not not it's genuinely so, bad. All right. So if this is really happening, not to not to have my uh, my zombie protocol click in too early. <laughs> In your opinion, guys, do you think, you know, we should do anything on an individual basis, like, you know, buy some extra food, but not any, any precaution here? No, it's not, it's not happening in Connecticut. Every outlet I've read said the probability of getting essentially out of West Africa is very low. The probability of being exported to the United States is extremely low or to, to Western countries, very, very low. It's probably not something that we need to worry about. Although, again, it's I, I would not have thought that we would be here. You know, a couple of months ago, uh, it's it's definitely spreading beyond what anybody anticipated. When it you know, it was, at first it was just another Ebola outbreak, and now here we are. It's the first epidemic, and it's bigger than all the other ones previously combined. Even knowing how bad it is right now, health officials are still saying it's not going to spread to other continents, so you don't have to worry about it. Right, but mm. we'll 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 That's come back. That's what they to want us now. to think. For now, yeah, we'll come back to this story. I mean, you know, it's it's a sad story. It's unfortunate. It's a lot of death and mayhem, and a lot of suffering that it's causing. It'll be interesting to watch how this proceeds and how the world responds. You know, 
Yeah, without a doubt. Okay, let's go on to number three. The latest tornado statistics for the U.S. indicate that the number of annual tornadoes has increased by about 20% between 1964 and 2012, and that one, of course, is the fiction. Did you just make it up, Steve? Yeah, I made that up. The numbers have been bouncing around. So, I mean, it is based on a news item, but it had nothing to do with the number of tornadoes. And And then I separately looked at tornado statistics. So you can go to NOAA, their National Climate Data Center, and they keep history back to 1964 through 2012 i guess it's they haven't collated the data for 2013 yet and the number of tornadoes per year bounces between around 380 and just under 900 actually there was a little bit of a spike in 2011 but 2012 is way down but anyway it looks like just a random up and down there's no trend i i don't think you could visually draw a line through there so i i just made up the 20% increase but what the real news item was is that tornadoes are occurring earlier in the season so ah, they specifically okay. they specifically looked at go. tornado shifting, alley shifting again yeah and they said that um if you look at all the states that are in what we call tornado alley in the United States which is basically the like the midwest plain states yeah if you look at all of those those states that the tornadoes are happening on average one week earlier that the peak is basically shifted one week earlier in the season however they also said that if you take nebraska out of the data because i guess that's an outlier if you take out that that out, out as an outlier the rest of the states actually have a two-week shift earlier. So it's a little bit more, actually, for most of those states. And they said this is important data because, obviously, it helps with warning systems and people you know, knowing what to do to protect themselves from tornadoes. So it's interesting that it has shifted. And that, again, could be an effect of warming temperatures, that that is changing. So, But not the number, not the number of tornadoes. So good job, guys. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Doctor. <laughs> Rebecca, tough year. Rebecca's yeah. having a tough year. You still do. You still yep. do well. You still do well overall, but it's you still yeah, just I know. not as well uh, as it you typically feel that way. <laughs> All right, Jay, hit us with a quote. I have a quote sent in from a listener named Paul Duggan from Australia, and the quote is from a man named Joseph De Mestre. <laughs> what? De Mestre. <laughs> Mr. Christian friends. <laughs> Let me see if I can pronounce this guy's name. Demister. Spell it. Uh, D-E space M-A-I-S-T-R-E. And he was a Savoyard philo- uh, philosopher, French. writer, lawyer, and diplomat. <laughs> okay, and the quote is, false opinions are like false money, struck first of all by guilty men and thereafter circulated by honest people who perpetrate the crime without knowing what they're doing. Joseph Demis today. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. So, couple of announcements. Don't don't stop listening to the podcast. Couple of important things that you'll want to hear. So, remember that we're doing a live SGU recording on October second, eight p.m. Eastern time. This will be a go-to meeting recording where we're going to have twenty SGU listeners on the call with us while we record a show. We will answer your questions live. And it'll be, we did this before. It was a lot of fun. Uh, we're, we're expecting it to be a lot of fun again. Now, I'm going to make a slight alteration in the rules for picking the 20 listeners who get to be on the extra show with us. We have had a few requests come in already, or there, there are still open slots. Um, this is what we're going to do. Five slots are going to go to the first five listeners who are not SGU members 
So the first five requests we get, that's it. 100% first come, first served. The other 15 slots will come, will be on, you know, first received priority, but will also be prioritized by membership level. This way, it's a, we get, it's a thank you for the support that our members give us, but also we'll have five slots set aside that anybody could get. We're just going to take the first five requests. Right, so send that to info at theskepticsguide.org with the subject matter, live recording. And one other announcement. This is a, a fun thing that we're working on. So um, as you know, we're going to Australia. We'll be at the Sydney Skeptics Conference at the end of November, and then the following week we'll be in Auckland, New Zealand at the Skeptics Conference there. We're also, we'll, we will also be stopping by San Francisco on our way through. I think Rebecca's coming from a different direction, so she won't be with us, but, but we will be, uh, at the San Francisco Bay Area on Saturday, on Saturday, November 22nd, and we are organizing an event there as well. What part of a live show that we're developing for this multi-city tour that we're doing will include a quiz show. And this is how it's going to work. Um, well, we need your help basically because we're going to need a couple of hundred science and skeptical quiz questions. The question should could be anything to do with geek culture, science or skepticism, but you also need to provide it's multiple choice. So A, B, C or D with one of them being correct. George Robb is going to be running and hosting the quiz show for us. So what we need you to do is send your questions, send some possible questions to George, help the poor guy out, and he will then vet and organize and use them for the show, uh, for the quiz show. Don't send them to us because we're going to be answering the questions. We can't know what they are. Just send them straight to George Robb. You can email George at geo at geologicrecords.net. That's G-E-O at geologicrecords.net and put SGU quiz show in the subject line. All right, guys. Well, thanks for joining me this week. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions, dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information on this and other episodes, please visit our website at theskepticsguide.org where you will find the show notes as well as links to our blogs, videos, online forum, and other content. You can send us feedback or questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. Also, please consider supporting the SGU by visiting the store page on our website, where you will find merchandise, premium content, and subscription information. Our listeners are what make SGU possible. Thank uh-huh. you.